going through the book of Matthew, you will see many things that seem to pop up that are peculiar, especially when you compare them versus other gospels in the scripture. Nothing contradicting other gospels, but there's one thing in particular that I think just resonates to the top. So I want to intro with that in mind, where Jesus in Matthew, Matthew records and promotes to us to read that Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven, not versus the kingdom of God, but a different phrase that Jesus is using to describe the Lord's reign over all things. Some, some see it as just an interchangeable phrase. You say God, I say heaven, kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, same thing. Another way to look at it is reverential circumlocution, as some theologians would say. Basically, when I say the kingdom of heaven, I don't want to offend Jewish people before I talk to them about the gospel. So I'll use the kingdom of God in other places, the kingdom of heaven in certain places, not to offend before I offend with the actual gospel. Another way to see this, I think, most clearly in Scripture is that when Matthew is using the kingdom of heaven... There's this theme of heaven versus earth, of king, a, a, a semblance of God's locational power and structure and mightiness that can be understood as packaged, if you will, in heaven versus the lowliness of the kingdom of earth. Matthew contrasts these two realms, the heavenly and the earthly. You know, if you think about Basketball. I was reminded of basketball this week, watching a, a high school game. I hadn't been to a, a basketball game in a long time. I never played basketball, wasn't good at it, don't really know the rules. But either way, when you walk into an arena, there, there's a certain feel about an arena that just kind of captures your attention. Growing up as an Oklahoma State fan, there was always the Kansas Jayhawks to be feared in basketball. Rock Chalk Jayhawks sent fears into the spine of anyone else because, frankly, they were just better than everyone else, especially in the Midwest. But on top of Kansas being really good at basketball, it was when you went to their home arena, Fog Allen Fieldhouse, that's when you were in trouble. I don't know if they've ever lost in Fog Allen Fieldhouse since OSU beat them a couple years ago in Fog Allen. But either way, there's this power that comes with your home territory. And so we see that Matthew is showing that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is in front of these people who are questioning Jesus' authority. So Jesus himself refers to his own power by saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the kingdom of heaven has some uh, tensions within it because it's within the kingdom of heaven that the, that the poor are valued more than the rich. It's in the kingdom of heaven that the worst are forgiven forever. It's in the kingdom of heaven that the small Faithful seed grows into a giant tree producing fruit, on and on. And like any kingdom, the kingdom of heaven most notably has within it a king. But this king, still living within the tension that we see in scripture, the king of the kingdom of heaven comes into town riding on a donkey. He comes into the world we see him by the womb of a virgin, a poor woman who's not even married. The king of heaven comes to us as a servant, not, not like a 
powerful warrior like these people would want him to, or we would want him to, that the king of the kingdom of heaven is Jesus of Nazareth, who is standing before people who are questioning him, hating him, against him, because he's doing something that only a king can do. He's performing certain acts, talking a certain way, speaking with such authority that it makes them not only question who he is as a king, but also it makes them hate him as a king. So this morning we come to a third parable where Jesus is answering by whose authority is he doing all these things? Jewish leaders, Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, elders within the temple are seeing our king, the king of heaven, do things that is unsettling to their whole lives. And so as if to pin him up against the wall, they ask, by whose authority are you doing all these things? And he is, in his own life, turning the world upside down. He's not only doing this by what he's saying and by how he's acting, but ultimately in, in our story, just a couple of days later, he's going to forever turn the world upside down by this king's own death on a cross. Only something that a, that a shameful person would do. So here he's answering the question, by whose authority are you doing all these things? And the authority ultimately is in the good news of his whole life. That the good news of God is that God is not done with his people in their rebellion. And so he sends messengers continually to his people to wake them up, if you will. To call them to repentance. But not just that, he's actually going to send someone who can only do for them what they cannot do for themselves. That's to pay an account for what they have done and live another day to tell about it. God's good news for his people is that he sent his son to die on a cross, bearing the wrath that God's people deserve, that we deserve for ourselves. Yet he lives to tell about it in his goodness and in his grace. And he fuels his own people by the Holy Spirit who wakes us up and causes us to see who he is and who God is to where we just give all of ourselves over to him. That's our king, ultimately, is the one who we submit to. Now, the world will tell you that the haters, they're just going to hate. The haters are going to hate, 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 hate. And ultimately, the response for all the haters is just to shake it off. And ultimately, we see that Jesus doesn't just shake it off, but he looks at those who are attacking him. He looks at the haters who are against him, and he responds to them by announcing to them exactly what the kingdom of God has within it. So if you have a copy of God's word, I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew 22, where we will see a final parable in this three-parable series where Jesus is unfolding what the kingdom looks like. In the first parable, we see ultimately that the kingdom showcases sin and offers a response to sinful people. You can either respond to that sin in repentance or respond to that sin in rejection. The second parable zooms way out, shows all of history, all mankind seeking ultimately a savior and a savior is offered. But in man's sin, man ultimately kills that savior, even though the Lord calls out to them to respond appropriately. And then here in this final parable, Jesus launches forward, if you will, to the end where he describes one last time the kingdom of heaven, and it looks to his people the way he would describe it, like a, like a feast, 
like a banquet, like the biggest, best meal you could ever fathom. And there are seconds and thirds, and it's being offered for the glory of his son. And his son's people are being invited to that feast. So ultimately, the text of our scripture says this, starting in verse 1 of Matthew 22. It says again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for a son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Verse 11, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. There are many times in the scriptures where feasts are talked about, most notably, I think, you have Isaiah 25, and you have Revelation 19, and then you also have this wedding feast, where we see God's glory and God's goodness, waiting for the honor and praise that is due to his son. And yet you see amazing particulars of people who are invited to this feast who don't want to go. So here stands Jesus before people who accuse him of blasphemy, asking him by what authority is he doing this? And he basically answers by the way of a parable, by the authority of the one who deserves all glory. All praise and all honor. He stands before them as Messiah, and they're scared, and they hate him, and they want him to die. So we see in this text that those who accept the Son have a seat at the table, and those who reject the Son are not only not invited, but they're also removed by their own rejection. I want you to notice a couple of things and see a couple of things within this passage. If you are an outliner or you take notes here, I want you to notice first within this parable the invitation of God and the rejection of man. Look again at verse 1. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for a son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. There's an invitation there. All of this has the emotion of the, of the scriptures behind it, who for ages and ages, God sent messengers into the world to announce that the Messiah was coming and there would be a feast and he would be exalted. And now they're sent out into the world to say, the meal is ready. 
and the chairs are waiting. And ultimately, they respond with a rejection at an invitation. It was time to exalt the sun. It was the season of fruit. And here stands man receiving an invitation and then just rejecting it. You've got to think the absolute insanity of these guys. Being able to read in the scriptures who Jesus was, being able to see what Jesus has done in all of his life, being able to know exactly who he was as the Messiah, and yet here stands Jesus saying that they will not accept the invitation. They will just let it go by. Ultimately here, we see that Jesus is describing not just the kingdom as a wedding feast, but the kingdom as having rejectors outside of it. People who are proud, people who are eager for their own self-interest, people who are generous only to themselves. Yet on the other side, we see a proud father, an eager father wanting people to be a part of this feast, and a generous father who is stopping at nothing to make this a lavish feast. Feast would have been known in that time as a multi-day affair. I've been to a wedding feast, and it lasted like two hours until you're just tired of dancing, or the DJ isn't that good, or they run out of food, and then you're done. I can't imagine going to a wedding feast that lasts for days. And they received an invitation, knowing what it would hold, and they rejected it. The first denial was that they were invited, they had been invited. But we see this picture almost of, as a man who is thirsty, and a man who is hungry, and a, and a table is set before him, and doesn't just say, I'm not really into that kind of food or that kind of drink, but actually just doesn't even show up. The audience here are the leaders of these Jewish people where the feast is ready in verse 2. The servants are sent in verse 3. And then in verse 4, it says, I have prepared again my dinner. He tells them again, I've prepared my dinner and invites them to come. And the reaction is to reject God. Now, you might look at that and go, yeah, of course, they're morons. Like, look at how huge of a rejection that they have. I wonder... In the ups and downs of our daily lives, mornings and evenings, lunch breaks, work, parenting, being a young person, how often do we reject God? In what ways do we reject God in maybe the small ways? Maybe, maybe our prayers filled with hopelessness. Or maybe our, our wonder of the promises of God, will those actually come true? Maybe, maybe the love of God that we know that he has for his own people, yet we in our own lives act like he doesn't love us. I was praying with a friend in seminary who was just going through, for all intents and purposes, a, an awful time. Just praying together. And he was listing everything in front of him that was on his heart. And it was a beautiful portrayal of both hope in what God would do and confession of his own heart. And the, uh, the amazing thing that impacted me so much was at the very end, he said, and Father, I know that you know me. And I know that you know all of this. And I know that it's not an accident that you know all this and that you know me. And yet, we live differently often, don't we? As if we're not known by God's love. As if God's love didn't reach us by the death of his own son. As if it's not actually good enough, so we need more. Here we see a first denial of people who were invited, who knew better, and yet they rejected 
the Lord, even though that the invitation was sent. We know this as prophets coming, both in the, what we have as the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. We see, we see images here, or maybe semblances of John the Baptist, where he comes into the world from the wilderness and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he looks at Jesus and acknowledges him as such. And Jesus talks about himself as the Messiah and the King. And then other apostles and church leaders after that are constantly pointing people through the scriptures by who Jesus is. I read this week that there are 31 ways to reject God. Isn't that, isn't that incredible? You might think of like four ways. Like really bad, really, really bad. Maybe some that people don't know about. And then like ah, some iffy ones, passive rejections. 31 ways that you can reject the Lord. And all of them equals one of them. Outright rejection of the invitation where the Lord is saying, come and dine. So I want you to notice the invitation of God and how gracious and kind it is. I want you to see the rejection of man with an invitation in mind. And then second, I don't just want you to, to see that. I want you to be amazed at the rejection of man and God's renewed invitation at that rejection. So secondly, be amazed at the rejection of man and God's renewed invitation. Look at verse 5 in the passage. It says, but they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Here we see the outcome of that second invitation or that re-invitation that God gives in verse four, we see a second denial here and it's by people who are indifferent. They go back to their business. They go back to their farm. Again, the insanity of this, the Lord is calling you to the feast in the, for the glory of his son and you wanna go back to work? I mean, how many people would love to leave work for like a fourth coffee break during the day? What if you actually had an invitation from God to come to his own wedding feast? And they go back to their farm and back to their business. It was more pressing for what they had to do for themselves. We, we see here that they're so busy with their work. They're so busy with gain. They're so busy with achievement that they couldn't understand that salvation was literally in front of them. And a chair was open for them at the table. So trapped by the farm and the shop. They couldn't go to the celebration. This is a, a picture of the skeptic. Just the person who is indifferent to the things of the Lord. And I would imagine there are several skeptics in here. There are things about the Bible that you just aren't really clear about. There are things in your own life or other people's lives you're just not clear about. So you haven't made sense of God. And I would just ask you, have you been a skeptic out loud with other people who actually believe it? I'm always amazed at when I don't know something and I just sit with me not knowing it, I will never learn about what I don't know. You know, without Wikipedia, I literally don't know anything. But if I, if I search it, like how tall is the Empire State Building? Oh, what do you know? I know. So if you're a skeptic and you have questions about God, it's not that you're against him necessarily, but some of this is pretty confusing. I would just encourage you to Say those things out loud to someone else. Work through something. Look at these texts with other people and ask questions and seek the Lord through prayer about what he says about himself. 
Just see what happens. What's the worst that could happen? You might actually know what this feast is about, where everyone else is dying to get in. We see people who are denying this invitation because they're so busy with the things of the world, they don't even know what's in front of them. There's another denial here within this second rejection. Look at verse 6. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. A more threatened group, a more hateful group, who is against Jesus, did not only denying the truth, but hoisting up their own truth and also taking ownership of what they thought was true in their own life. That's what we got to talk about this as we see this is where the prophets get killed at the hands of the leaders of who God was entrusting his people to. God was sending messengers throughout time to call people to wake up, to repent, to see the Lord is ultimately in charge. And they killed him again and again. They didn't just kill him. They went to work on him after they killed him. We talked about people being abandoned or thrown into a pit, sawed in half, destroyed, stoned to death, had their faces smashed in. There's nothing passive about rejecting God. It may just seem quiet in your own mind or quiet in your own heart, but you are volitionally against him when you reject him. And this causes righteous anger. Look at verse 7. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. By refusing the invitation, the story becomes quite almost bizarre, you could say, with the murder of the messengers and now a military campaign taking place against Israel's leaders because of their refusal to respond to God's call through Jesus as their Savior. These people were not living up to the expectation, and they lose their place, but they not only they not only stop living up to the expectation, they not only lose their place in the kingdom, but this enraged king sends soldiers to wipe them out and also destroy their city. For the unrighteous has slain the righteous. And any man who understands good and what is right would react like this king would react in this way. Last week, the parable had, had the owner of the vineyard again and again and again sending messengers ultimately, biblically, to wake people up. And I, I pose the question, why in the world would he not kill everyone who's killing his own messengers? And here we have the answer. He certainly will. When you're against God, you don't just go to eternal timeout. You don't just slip by his righteous wrath. You are destroyed by him. An extreme punishment is reserved for the serious, treasonous revolt against the king. Denying the king of his kingship is treason. And all of us are guilty of that when we sin. All of us are treasonous against a king who deserves ultimate honor because he's very good. And yet he promises that that will happen. Now, in this part of the passage, there are some questions that seep up to the top. When, it, when is this going to happen? You know, I know this is a parable. So in some ways, it's using common things to speak very clearly and very mysteriously about something in this particular parable, about something that's going to happen. Here we see some things that are partially fulfilled later on in history. 
You know, some people believe that this is talking about what will ultimately happen to the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD, where things are ultimately destroyed. Maybe that is also the culmination of what's being talked about in Deuteronomy. Maybe the servants being spoken about here are John the Baptist and Jesus and the apostles. There's a lot of things that are going on, but ultimately, if you take a step back, let the story stay what the story says. It is a warning more than anything else against the enemies of God. They are rejecting the son and the father takes a break from the preparation of the feast to eliminate them. The food is not going cold. It is what it is waiting on the arrival of those who would partake of it. But he will stop at nothing to give to those what they deserve. So here we just see, what do you take away from this? Don't be indifferent to this king. Don't be hateful to this king. Don't think that this king will pass you by without looking at you. You know, if you're a young person, you, you have the whole life in front of you. You have years and years and years to make big decisions. Don't worry about that. Just, just stay in this. Just focus on this. But even for those of us who are young or those of us who are young at heart, the decision is ever in front of us. You're either against the king or you accept him as the king. And the benefit of that is we get to see and we get to participate and we get to be a part of this grand feast at the end where the food is talked about lavishly, where the drink is talked about like as it's overflowing in its goodness, where this is a party that never, ever stops. But you don't get in if you reject the king. So we see a rejection, a reminder, even though it was a re-invite, we see another rejection. And so what happens now within the parable? It doesn't just end. We see a renewed invitation. A renewed invitation. Look at verse 8. Do you see the Father for who he is there? He most certainly is a God of wrath against those who are not worthy. Those who are not worthy are those invited but are sinful and they reject him those who are not worthy it's not just that they're not good enough it's not just that they're not moral enough or that they're not ethical enough it's not just that they didn't have good deeds no they weren't worthy because they wouldn't accept the invitation and then when another invitation came they rejected the invitation so we see the wrath of God but we also see the faithful patient eagerness of the Lord for his own people. How many times will he send invites? How many times will he send servants? How much will he wait for a son to respond in repentance like in the first parable? For many of us, a very long time. And how merciful he is to wait that long, maybe for you. Some of my favorite testimonies are those who are much older And they said, after decades and decades and decades, the Lord just smashed into my life and woke me up. On top of that, some of the also encouraging testimonies are those who are super young, where they responded to the Lord and are able to avoid the the things of peril of life because they have a taste and a thirst for the king for the rest of their lives. How long will he wait for a son or daughter to respond in repentance? Here we have, until the very end, he will wait. 
But with this, we see a universal proclamation where the Lord is now sending his message to the ends of the earth. And he promises to do so. He gives a general call to the world or a renewed invitation to everyone. Look at verse 9. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you will find. He is no longer going to wait for just the Jewish people to come to him. Now he's extending the invitation because of the Jewish people's shame and not responding to the invitation. He's now sending the invitation to everyone. And what's so incredible about this is the everyone that is included here are the people of the streets. The unrighteous, the unclean, the dirty. Those who wouldn't ever imagine going into a palace, much less being invited. Here we see that he goes for the good and the bad in verse 10. Another way of saying everyone, he's saying the message needs to go to everyone. Everyone is invited. Here we get our gospel command that that we are also to go to everyone and speak about this feast. Nothing is outside of God's desire. No one is too far lost for God's grace to snatch and gather for his own. The outward privileges of God's word are for everyone to hear, and he has no discrimination on those who will hear. I feel like when I was in college, it was in some ways at the apex of the sexual revolution where it became the cool phrase to say that I'm just born this way. You, You can't be against me in anything I am because I'm born this way. And to some degree, that might be the case. But the Lord has always not just seen us as born a certain way, but is calling us to be born again. The message of the gospel goes to everyone and calls people to repentance, to a renewal, to a transformation of the soul. All of us are like the first son denying the good work of the Father. All of us are like the wicked tenants, wanting to reap what we think is ours. And all of us are like the ones who reject the invite. We need the constant reminder from God on who he is. So what God does here is he reconstitutes who he's going after. He's going after street people with no standing, every kind, a unique charge so that we can respond with passion when we read about the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, go into all the nations and make disciples. God sends out this call, this gospel, and God's people will hear it when it's offered to them by the power of the Spirit, and they will respond. Maybe you will respond because of who Christ is both seeing his goodness and his faithfulness and his glory, but also seeing his wrath, his wrath against your sin. And it's only by the work of Christ that we could ever stand in that and not be smashed to pieces. So for those who will receive Christ, we thank him because when we imagine the feast, when we imagine what the kingdom of heaven looks like, I mean, the most amazing thing about our testimony is that we'll be there. Have you ever wanted to be in a hall of fame? Of course you have. Imagine having a seat at the table with the king sitting beside you, acknowledging you as the son 
with a daughter. Tremendous to think about. And it's incredible to think about that it was ever denied, yet we far too often are needing of this reminder. So when the question of Jesus' authority is being asked, he speaks of the invitation that God gives even though he acknowledges the rejection of man. And then he lifts up this rejection again yet shows this renewed invitation by God and all of God's kindness. And then finally, we are warned in this parable of the deception of man and the division by God. We're warned of the deception of man and the division by God, lastly. Don't lose sight of this being a feast where the table is set and the father is eager and the son is awaiting the glory. And we've seen the invitation rejected. We've seen the rejectors punished. And we see the new guests invited. And now, now amazingly, we see an intruder within this palace. We see an intruder coming in. Look at verse 11. It says, when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place where, he will, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. So we see the Lord opening up this invitation for all to come and hear and respond. And we see a third denial by the form of a party crasher. This deceptor, a, a man who had not changed, but just tries to go in as if no one would notice that he is there. I love one Greek scholar who says that when the Bible talks about him being speechless, what that means is he was muzzled. Dumb from confusion and embarrassed. We might imagine like a deer in the headlights. But a deer in the headlights is confused at what is happening. This man wouldn't be confused at all. He knew exactly where he was going when he was walking in and taking place. And when the Lord saw him, he took action. Now why was he taking action against him? The text says because he wasn't wearing the wedding garment that he would have been given. I like what one guy says, this guy just shows up looking tacky. He's showing up to a party where everyone else is kind of wearing the same thing. You go to a black tie affair wearing a red tie. Like this guy is the ultimate hipster before hipsters were cool. He wants to not fit in. But it's far worse than just being tacky. But is it fair that the king would take such an assault on him? After all, he is picking up people from the street. What did you expect people would come in like? Now, there's much to be debated here. Did he have enough time to go home and maybe get clothes? Was, was he sent the right clothes? Maybe, maybe in that custom they were sent things for when you would go to a wedding feast, you were to wear something specifically. Maybe it was raining outside and he just couldn't wear what he wanted to wear. Maybe he, like me, often takes his dry cleaning to the dry cleaners on a Friday and just forgets. And then maybe it's Tuesday and Wednesday and it's like, I actually don't have any shirts anymore. Ultimately, that's not the case. He was given the invitation. He was given the pass. Scripturally, we would see in multiple accounts where when you, are, when you are given this new life, you are given the righteous robes of God. You are given the, the full righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees who his son died for. He sees his son's brother and sister. 
He, he was adorned, he would have been adorned in Christ's righteousness, yet he walks in here wearing clothes that he shouldn't be wearing. And Jesus, what he intended to say, or what he said here, is that he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment, and he threw him out. And when confronted, he was speechless. He didn't argue, he didn't give excuses, he didn't say, oh shucks, he didn't say, well, let me go home and get it, I just ran out of time. He knew exactly what was happening. He knew that he didn't want to do anything different than what he would normally do. He knew that he was trying to walk into that wedding feast being himself, not being renewed, not being remade. He was, as many people say today, he was, he was basically saying, I do me. I am who I am. This man without a wedding garment pictures those who think to be accepted by Christ is by their own righteousness rather than the righteousness of Christ. They're wanting to do any, they're not wanting to do anything different than they would normally do. Not living up to the expectation ultimately shows his lack of faith. It may look like at the beginning that this man would have had some semblance of faith, yet was ultimately having no works. And the Bible has no category for people who have faith but no works. Nor does it have a category for the righteous who have a lot of works but no faith. These two, it goes together. Much like faith and repentance is like a two-headed coin, faith and works, they, they just activate at the same time they're going in the same direction. The invitation was both extended to the good and the bad, but the individual preparation was still necessary. And so this man was tossed out. Not only tossed out, he was bound so that he couldn't come back in out into utter darkness. We would imagine the great lights of what would happen at this grand wedding feast, this amazing banquet, being adorned in all glory and honor, but far from it would be the darkness of the woods where evil reeks. And that's where he was thrown. But not only to that, it says, in that a place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some of you have children who never stop crying and it reminds you of how good heaven will be where there is no crying, right? Or it reminds you of the suffering of what it must be like to weep forever at your own sins. But far too often, we don't picture God's wrath as also being the gnashing of teeth, the bone-on-bone -bone grinding away in suffering, outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, and he thought he could just sneak in as if there wasn't that much at stake. So we see the division where Jesus not only identifies him, but also casts him out into outer, outer darkness. And so we have this picture in front of us and we must wonder what does it mean to then be robed in this righteousness, to have this wedding garment. We have multiple pictures in the scriptures what it means to be clothed with the right understanding of what God desires for us to be clothed in, the righteousness of Christ that is being covering us. Look at uh, on the screens, Revelation 19, starting in verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In Revelation 19, we have a grand 
amazing picture of the feast where the Lamb of God is being celebrated and the righteous bride of Christ is being presented to the groom. That is who Christ is portrayed in scriptures as the groom and the, and the church is portrayed as the bride. And the bride was given these clothes of righteousness. You would imagine the excitement of a bride who would be known for her scarlet, sinful, unrighteous past, yet now being given clothes that show purity and honor and dignity and acceptance by the groom. It's much to be marveled at and it's much to be sought for. This is the call of all of us to seek these robes because left unto ourselves, what we wear is not good enough. It is not clean. It is unholy. It is unrighteous. And yet in 2 Corinthians, we are encouraged. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. By Jesus' death on the cross, we are made righteous. We get to exalt and praise and glorify the Lord forever and ever. And this parable is looking at Jewish leaders in the face, deniers and hateful men, and says, you have been invited and you don't come, and you will be separated forever. And in verse 14, it sums up not only this parable, but all three parables, really. For many are called, but few are chosen. The chosen are those who accept the invitation on the king's terms. The chosen are the new tenants of the field who seek to produce fruit for the king rather than fruit for themselves. The chosen are the sons who turn from self-centeredness and self-righteousness to the true glory and righteousness of Christ. Ultimately, what Jesus does in these three amazing, impactful parables is he puts the kingdom in focus. And the kingdom of focus is made up of the invited. It's made up of the righteously adorned. It's made up of the repentant. Those who see themselves as unholy and see Christ as holy. And the kingdom of God in focus looks like all of those people are at a table eating and drinking. For there was a man who died and rose again to tell about it. And they have that rejoicement forever and ever. So Jesus... <laughs> is having his authority questioned by few who stood in him. But the, the drastic and dark portrayal of this is that they are the ones who think that they can sneak in to the wedding feast and they will be removed. Don't lose the gravity of this scene. We get a taste of this when we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Next week, we are celebrating the Lord's Supper together in our Sunday services. So if you're not familiar with that or you've been kind of coming here for a couple of weeks, I invite you to come back next week at 9 a.m. or at 1045 and we'll celebrate as God's people this, this foretaste of what it means to commune with God. We get to see and practice this sign of the gospel where we have a picture of Jesus' death for Jesus' people. We get a picture of this slain lamb when we partake of the food and drink of the vine. And it's an amazing thing because we can look at texts like this where Jesus is talking about the feast of what will ultimately be for him. And we get to rehearse that. 
We get to remind ourselves and other people of this is what it will be like forever where we are at the table with the Lord in all of his glory and there will be no weeping. There will be no gnashing. There will be nothing bound, but only him will be praised. Here we have in this parable an opportunity to see what it means to accept the son. What it means to accept the son is to have a seat at the table. Also, we get to see what it means to reject the son to be removed from the table forever. And so I just invite you to come to this table, come to the Lord and dine with him. The invitation is out there for you. The Lord is calling you to himself. He's done it from messengers or on Sunday mornings or in VBS or maybe in your daily devotionals or just the random verses that people send you over a text message. The Lord is calling you to his table. And so, friend, if you are not a part of the Lord's table, I encourage you to come and dine. Don't just come and watch, but come and partake. This may all feel or seem unbelievable, but it's not unbelievable because of the gift that God has given us by his son's death and sacrifice for our sins. Before us is the reality of God's love portrayed In this parable where Jesus is showing what the kingdom of heaven will look like, it looks like God's love. It looks like the accomplishment of the Son's work. It looks like his Spirit's work showing us the truth of his grace and mercy. And so the Lord is telling these men, like he's telling us this morning, to come and dine. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning in pure thankfulness at what you have accomplished for our sake. And God, we marvel at what it cost you. It cost your son his life. And yet it is for us. So Father, we pray that when we look at a passage like this, when we go out today, that we will be transformed by the truth of your gospel, that we will be people who will go about to the, to the outside, to the streets, and remind people to respond to you, to remind people of this feast that you are going to provide for us. God, we thank you for this warning, and we thank you for this reminder of grace. And we pray these things by the power and in the name of him who gave what we didn't deserve. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.